Hey, before we start, I want to ask you a favor. If you're a fan of WMFA, will you consider becoming a patron? I know, it's kind of awkward. We so rarely talk about the business of being creative, right? But we should. That's part of what WMFA is all about. And WMFA is a lot of fun to make, but it's also a lot of work. And right now I do it all. Patrons make small monthly contributions that directly help me get that work done. And they get cool stuff in return, like bonus content. Visit www.patreon.com slash WMFA podcast to learn more and sign up. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thanks so much. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier. May is Appalachia Month on WMFA, and I'm starting it off with Robert Guype. Robert is the author of two illustrated novels, Weed Eater, released this year by Ohio University Press, and Trampoline. He lives in Harlan, Kentucky, and grew up in Kingsport, Tennessee. His fiction has appeared in Appalachian Heritage, Still, Southern Cultures, Motif, and Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel. He's also the executive producer of the Higher Ground Community Performance Project in Harlan County. Weed Eater is the second novel in a trilogy about contemporary Appalachia. The first novel in the series, Trampoline, told the story of 15-year-old Don Jewell, an acerbic artistic teenager growing up in Kentucky amidst environmental destruction, addiction, and poverty. In Weed Eater, Don is a young mother, and her community, and her family, are in the middle of the opioid epidemic. Like Trampoline, Weed Eater is full of characters who fight to save and protect what's theirs, a struggle that plays out in various ways and to various degrees of success. In both books, Voice, Don Jules, Robert Gipes, leaps off each page. Here, Robert and I talk about how growing up around storytellers sharpened his ear for narrative, as does his work with Higher Ground, which uses oral histories to create performances around issues like strip mining and drug addiction. We also talk about reluctant narrators and ambiguous endings, chain-smoking notebooks, and the weekend that made Robert decide, at age 43, to pursue writing. That's our job, right, as fiction writers, to kind of explore what happens when people, when things are at their boundaries. You know, it's like, personally, I don't find it less interesting when things don't result in catastrophe. You know what I mean? That you're still taking a reader out to the edge of what things are supposed to be. I just finished Weed Eater this morning, and it is wonderful, and I have a lot of questions about it. But first, I kind of wanted to zoom out a little bit and ask you about Trampoline and Weed Eater, and then the third one, Pop, that's on the way, and, and kind of start with how you envisioned the project. Did you see it as a trilogy kind of from the start, or how did that come about? Well, it's funny. I, uh, I'm not much of a plotter. P-L-O-T-T-E-R person, and I just tend to write um, scene after scene after scene and then kind of just arrange them into some sequence. And so I've always been uh, putting these kind of artificial structures on things, like I knew Trampoline was going to be five acts with three chapters in each act. And... um, Sim- and similarly, I knew Weed Eater was going to be named Weed Eater, but I didn't know why. And so I kind of had to think it up backwards like that. And um, 
so similarly, so one of my structures is this is actually all due to my favorite writing teacher, Darnell Arnault, who um, teaches her the way she teaches her novel process is a lot of you start with character and you develop your characters as fully as possible, and then you start putting them in scenes once you know who they are and what they're going to do. And then you just you just generate scenes until a novel emerges. But so she, um, in one of our workshops, she asked us to name all the books we would ever write. And so I only wanted to write three, and then I think Hollywood fame will find me, and I can just sit back and let other people uh, write the stories. But uh, so at that time, I was in the middle of trampoline, and I said that my three books were going to be Trampoline, Weed Eater, and Pop, which are three kind of one word, um, com- the three most uh, interesting yet common uh, mountain nouns for my community that everyone would get a little uh, joy out of just the idea of a book named those things. And so it started off as, you know, kind of like a little haiku and then it's turned into three books. I love that idea of making you, why did she, why did she tell you why you had to list all the books that you were going to write? I think it was, she's a lot about making you feel, you know, confident and inevitable. She likes you to feel like this, this thing that seems very unlikely is really actually inevitable that you would write a bunch of books. And so, um, I think it was, you know, it's, it was like a, uh, visualization exercise, right? If you see it, then you can do it. I like that a lot that I was just telling somebody recently, my friend, uh, another writer friend, um, said that a big moment for him in writing his first book was realizing that he didn't need to put everything in the first book and that he would write more books. And that just seemed like it was almost like a like Zen cone to me. It seemed so like unattainable. I was just like, I can't wrap my brain around the one. So I, uh, and I would say if you can restrain yourself, I would advise that you do that because the first one, uh, you throw all your stuff in it and then, you know, you have to go out and interact with new people and, and get into new situations to have any more stuff, which is, you know, that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point of writing. Yeah. So you need to really meet it out um, uh, in as small a doses as you can get away with. Did you do uh, that with trampoline or did you finish no, it and then you were like, shit? No, I poured everything. I, I wrote like there was no tomorrow. And there will be a tomorrow. And you need to save some food. You need to save some material for the next one. But you don't you don't know. Right. With the first one you don't know if anybody's gonna like it. It's like um, you know, first date. You're you're just being as awesome as you are physically capable of being, and then it's just an unsustainable level. That's true. Of awesome. And then this is what happens. I think we, you know, I mean, it's tough because ideally you would have a publisher that just believed in you so much that you didn't have to pour everything into the first book so that you could kind of sandbag a little bit. But Mm -hmm. that's not the way it works. But anyway, you should set aside a few things. So did you start? I mean, you had to have started with Dawn, right? She's such a powerful voice. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. And, um, Originally, you know, we I do all this oral history work, 
at school and so we were used to um and i grew up around i you know my first job was uh working with a company apple shop that produces documentary films so i was real familiar it was a real familiar um language or you know way of putting a story across to have multiple speakers in it and so i had originally had you know a gabble of a gaggle a gaggle of speakers in the book and eventually it was just about simplifying it and she's the one that was the clearest voice and so she was also the only one i could figure out how to draw it was like uh, i was able to add another speaker in the second book because i figured out a person i could draw over and over <laughs> and so that's how it works so I figured out another one for the third book. Her daughter is now 15, and so she's one of the narrators in the third book. Did Dawn, um, I mean, I don't want to ask where she came from because I know that's an impossible thing to answer, but, you know, I know you work a lot with students, and I just kind of wonder if if now maybe you can connect some dots about, you know, things you were seeing, things you were seeing girls worrying about or behaving like that kind of contributed to the the way that she came alive. Um, so, you know, the kind of where it began was, um, I had been involved in a, um, campaign to protect a a mountain that was very much like the campaign to protect Blue Bear Mountain in, um, trampoline. And in the course of being involved with, um, environmental organizations and other social justice organizations and, I got kind of interested in the children of activists and, you know, how they got dragged to all these meetings, which they may or may not have, you know, had any interest in, um, and how those causes may or may not have been their causes. And, and also just the, um, how, a parent that's trying to save the world, how that time is taken from something. If that's a, if that's a thing most people don't do, then that time has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it might even come from the children they're supposed to be raising. And so then, uh, then to make it more complex. So she had that. So Dawn had that on one side. And so I'd seen some of these kids had some notion of them and then on the other side you know she had somebody who was um having trouble with drugs or alcohol which was also taking time from her mm-hmm. so she's having to be this kind of super kid and uh uh she didn't necessarily embrace that role you know that that but there was something she had to do to survive and so then of course you know it's like we did a major oral history project, theater project around um, prescription drug abuse in our community and over prescription of opioids in our community. And, uh, and so, you know, and it really highlighted for us the absence of um, adequate mental health counseling and just mm-hmm. adequate uh, engagement with the mental health care system because um, it isn't doesn't exist. It's not the patient would be patient's fault. It's the system's fault. But uh, that when we started doing this oral history work around um, 
prescription drug problem that there's an outpouring. You know, people uh, needed to talk about it. And so just heard a lot, you know, heard a lot of these narratives. And in the course of that, I got very interested in um, first-person narrators and orators and, you know, the idea that the occasion for a lot of people's storytelling is trying to work out how they feel about things, whether it's in a therapeutic setting or <clears throat> just with a close friend. And really just the idea that, you know, um, if you're not raised to go and talk about your problems, that it really would be an awkward thing for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm always, one of the things I enjoyed doing and writing trampoline is this is the idea that most people would not want to tell you all these things. Right. That they they might need to tell you things, but they wouldn't be that happy about it. And so this kind of persona of the reluctant narrator was pretty um I had a pretty great deal of experience with it and was very interested in how people reveal themselves in speech. And so, you know, that's that's how I felt comfortable writing her in first person because I'd had all this experience with um, interviewing and transcribing interviews and editing interviews that, you know, you just, it's just very interesting the way people tell you something. Mm -hmm. And so I always, you know, I always thought that was, was one of the things that I always felt was a little false in books. It's like, he never quite understood why would someone sit down for the 14 or 16 hours that it took them to narrate the story and tell you the story. Mm. But like the whole issue of what compelled a person to tell the story, I always thought was it. I mean, I guess most writers have it, but you know, this idea, I think that was one thing that made her something was that, you know, she didn't really want to tell you the story mm -hmm. that, that kind of pops up. And then actually a couple times in the narrative, she tries to chase you off. Do you feel like she totally didn't want to say, didn't want to tell you? Or do you feel like, um, I don't know, that it, I, I agree with all of that. And then I am just remembering that reading it, um, I felt like there was a kind of sense of like, not quite relief, like nothing that conscious, but just a sort of like, you know, you do get surprised what people end up saying to you. That kind of, that kind right. of thing. I'm just like, well, you get started and, and it, it becomes something you need to do. Well, so many of the people, you know, survivors are in a place where things are hard, economically hard, and then they get emotionally hard, is that you got to keep your dukes up, right? Mm -hmm. You got you to stay tough. And if you show a lot of vulnerability, um, that, that can be very uh, risky. And so at the same time, if you keep, your feelings all to yourself and don't process them, that can be pretty toxic too. And so she's, she's uh, navigating her way through that, those twin distresses, I yeah. guess. So, yeah. And so, you know, I can name you a number of people I know that contributed to her um, way of telling as much her way of telling the story as the story itself i tried to stay away from you know people's actual stories sure. but i was very interested in how they told them and from you know where they came from when they were telling it and she's such a great she's got and and you know as a defense 
against all of these things, too, I'm sure, that we're talking about. But she's got such a sense of humor. She's so sardonic about it all. And she's so intelligent. And so she's just such a good interpreter of everything that she's telling you. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's the way a lot of people are. I mean, you know, humor is a self-defense tool a lot of times. A shield. Right. And a, and a sword. Did you find yourself surprised during Weed Eater of the way that she, the way the way that she grew into an adult? No, I mean, again, you know, it's like for me the the books are a way of recording what sense I'm making of being in the coal fields in this time, and so you know, I just watched what was happening to people in her. Uh, age group and you know that that kind of um, fierceness is hard to maintain and it'll keep showing through but you kind of get rounded off you know your blunt edges you just get it's just the stamina it takes to stay in um, hard circumstances it's kind of I'm I'm thinking she she uh by the third book she's her energy has been even more sapped and so I'm kind of thinking about her there but so what was your what was your sense of how she changed from book 1 to book 2 I just really loved um you know and, and it's a it's a light touch that it kind of comes in with but I love how she starts to grapple with like who is she is she even anything like you know, she, and the the kind of deadness she feels about her relationship, where like you know, I think she's mm-hmm. like I I I hate when I can't even get mad at him or something like that. You know, there's just kind of this mm-hmm. blankness, and she sees it, and that she sees it um, was really striking to me because that's such a you know because everything you're saying about you know the age she was at tra- and during trampoline, it's that idea of having to suppress yourself and having to suppress your needs to like just get through or to take care of other people. And then the way the dust can kind of settle in some of those situations and you see that a lot has been eroded from you personally. I, I liked the way that she was starting to like become aware of that. Yeah, you know, and I think one thing is um, kind of in the meta story is that I think that she was, I think that the story of the story must be that She's about the age she is in. I should think more about this. She's about the age that she is in Weed Eater when she's telling Trampoline. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? That it's a retrospective. Mm-hmm, she's mm-hmm. looking back at some crazy, some crazy shit that happened to her when she was fifteen. It's not live. It's her oral history, so to speak. Right. Right. And I think it's and it's interesting because um, to me anyway, it's interesting to me anyway because I think she's closer to the age she is in the story in Weed Eater, and I'm really trying to the pop. It's almost live, so it's almost like that could help me with pop because I think what's happening is is that basically she's telling her life back. Okay. Across three books from a fairly close to the same time. Okay, so Weed Eater, the telling is happening closely with the age that she currently is. 
Yeah, she's. Whereas if she was twenty one or twenty two when she told trampoline, it would be seven years later. Right. And I think this one may only be four years later. This is not something I've really thought about, uh-huh. but it's it's kind of a, the fun of you know doing the same thing over three three books. Yeah, yeah. And then where did uh where did Jean or Weed Eater come from in uh? in we how did how did you decide to open it up to another voice besides figuring out how to draw one i saw a guy he was he mowed yards and i i observed him at least once just making up just uh, he uh somebody was talking about coal mining around him and he made this most elaborate authoritative speech about how coal mining works that i who have never been in a coal mine was pretty sure was uh, completely fabricated and inaccurate, but told with such authority and just, uh, I just love that. And, you know, that, um, you know, that the, that everybody's got this inner narrative life, you know, and everybody's trying to talk their way, not just into, um, they're trying to talk their, they're trying to talk themselves into the meaning of their life, right? That right. they're, and that, um, uh, and that, you know, I just was interested in the idea of kind of articulation as uh, risk, you know, that he was just kind of, just kind of putting it out there. And for whatever reason, you know, he was um, needing to establish himself as a person and he was doing it through this narration. And, um, uh, and so, you know, and, and and so he was just very clear. It was just clear as a person. Yeah. So wait, did anybody listening to him call him out on anything? Oh, uh, they were from they were from far away. Oh, yeah, okay. no, yeah, they thought it was they thought they were the luckiest <laughs> the luckiest visitor to the Appalachian coalfields it ever was. And I didn't say you know, and this is this is me. I didn't say anything either. I'm like you know, let them have their. Yeah, they have their knowledge to go out and spread. I mean, it was also like this is the level. I mean, I think one of the things that's perpetually amazing to me about people in the rest of the United States of America, they have no clue what it's like to live here. You know, this right. is that they, they are this, they do not have the apparatus to grasp what. America is capable of as it's played itself out here in the Appalachian coal fields that you can tell them anything. And uh, so, so I was kind of like that, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, y'all go on and, and you can it's better that you mangle this when you go back to wherever you came from than mangle the truth. Who knows? You might even mangle his story into the truth. What I sort of unconsciously struggled with for a long time, and I've only sort of recently identified about like reading Appalachian literature, is that it is traditionally so masculine. And there's so much masculinity and so much, and that's such a sort of central, you know, archetype of the, of the region. And so I love Dawn as a counter to that. And I just wondered if that was something that you were thinking about. I know you love Charles Portis. I know you love True Grit. So I imagine that was in there too, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, 
I know there's there is a little subset of dudes who get away with um, these female protagonists. Um, very interesting to me, but they, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like I was seeing, I was hearing so many stories of female students, and, and you know, and part of the motive for the book was uh, to give my students something, you know, mm-hmm. that that presented them in a way that wasn't uh, too fake or, you know, wasn't unresonant with what was going on. That, um, that it wasn't too cheery. Um, and yeah, it's like, and yeah, I mean, and you know, it's like, I'm not a, I'm not a gun guy. I mean, I, you know, I was like, I don't, I, I get it. And, uh, you know, but it's like, Everything I know about hunting, I learned in the barber shop where I go, where everybody's, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like I get my hair cut in a tree stand, and um, and so, but you know, it's like I uh, I just found all that that what was going on with her her kind interesting, mm-hmm. and um, I guess imagine that as a reader. I mean, it's, again, it's like with weed eater. Um, she was just clear, Mm -hmm. you know, she was somebody that I could see from side to side. And I I also think, you know, it's, um, this idea of kind of, uh, I was also, I'm just, you know, continually interested in this idea of a gender as a continuum. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's pretty. It's interesting. It's interesting the way, despite the kind of strictly, the existence of strictly defined gender norms, how people in the region mess with that. I mean, you know, there are a lot of physically aggressive. um, I have a lot of physically aggressive female friends that aren't scared to, you know, get into a fistfight or to brandish a firearm at the same time, you know, there are a lot of guys who are very gentle and Mm -hmm. very, um, interested in nature and flowers and et cetera. And so, um, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that drives me crazy is just that people tend to be, um, reductionist about what people are. And, just because some perceived majority of them are some perceived way doesn't mean that you can't have doesn't mean that somebody else is not true to a place or a time. I was just thinking when you were when you were saying all of that about the kind of gender fluidity of it, the way that that kind of interacts with the idea of nurturing in weed eater. And like I loved like I just really loved for some reason, uh Dawn asleep on Decent's float house and, and she realizes that Nicolette has woken up, but she lets her go out and she's like, there's enough nurture out there. And it's just like, I think a lot about in my, in my own work and just in my own thinking about the region, kind of like what women sort of absorb and have to like take care of um, and all the ways that taking care of someone, all the, all the definitions of that in Appalachia. Which, like, you know, of course, every place has its own 
things, but but yeah, I, so I, I really like applying those two thoughts to each other. I really like thinking about those two ideas together, that nurturing and then the sort of gender spectrum uh-huh. and, and how those two things come together. Because Gene is also very, you know, there is, he's very caring. There's something very um, gentle about him. Yeah, I um, I know, and I was kind of, I was, I, I will admit, I was kind of, you know, it, on his surface, he, um, he, you know, he's kind of not almost a stalker. You know, he has a kind of one-sided um, uh, interest in June that she doesn't really share, and um. But I was, you know, I was, I was interested in he uh, kind of comes up to the edge of that and backs off and, you know, makes a conscious decision to not um, go where he's uninvited. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at the same time, I think that, you know, that Dawn is on her edge. She's just on the edge of like that scene you mentioned you know, she's kind of out there in a place where she is so ready to just let go mm-hmm. and um, abandon her child to the kindness of strangers, almost. And um, of course, you know that that's that's our job, right, as fiction writers, to kind of explore what happens when people when things are at their boundaries. Right. But I, you know, it's like personally, I don't find it less interesting when things don't result in catastrophe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That you're still taking a reader out to the edge of what things are supposed to be. Cause I know that one thing I'm kind of interested in is how do you, pre- this is something we got into with our, our community based theater work too, is how do you present uh, a representation of the community that is, um true to to the degree of dysfunction and pain there is but also presents you know pathways to functionality and decency that i think a lot of times fiction presents i think fiction gives evil more power than sometimes it has in mm-hmm. people's lives you know you can evoke the presence of it without having to let it have sway. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. You mean like it has more power in the sense that it's kind of just dramatically and narratively more helpful and more interesting. Or that it's going to win out, mm. you know, if you're serious. It has to, you know, evil has to win in the right. end. Cause you don't want to be saccharine and wrap right. everything up. Exactly. So I think, you know, on that front, the other thing I like is, if you can to, I I always love an ending where people will argue about what even happened. Mm. Like in trampoline, you know, most, and in fact, this was a litmus test to how close to the culture you are. And then trampoline in the end, her mother uh, gets baptized mm-hmm. and people are like, oh, I didn't think that that didn't make sense. Cause she wasn't. Um, and you know, she kind of gives it away. It's like, she got, in part, she got baptized because she was in trouble with the law. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and 
And the thing is, is that we do things for a hundred different reasons, right? She might have wanted out of her addiction. She might have wanted out of trouble with the law. You know, she might have uh, had a visitation from an angel one day. We don't know. But anyway, it's like all that's in play. I mean, you know, it's like not to, it's like, I don't know what happened at the end. All you know is what happened at the end is somebody's tail. Right. Somebody being poetic. Are they being literal? Are they drunk? You don't know. I mean, this is all part of the first person narration. I'm just thinking about that now with Gene and Dawn. I think I would have to think about it a little bit more. They don't, because you do often drop into a scene in both of their perspectives, but I don't think they have a ton. Um, they're ne- those, those narratives aren't ever really contradictory or they don't ever seem to see things terribly differently. That's a good point. I should work on that. <laughs> I don't mean that as a, as an insult. I'm just thinking. No, about no, it. but it's a good point. They should, they, uh, that's a flaw. So there's two flaws and I'll just tell you, cause I know you're, most I don't know a lot of your listeners are writers too, and so they all. One is that they should have had opposite points of view on some story, and the other thing is there's no way there would have been a story. Why did I not have his weed eater get stolen? Because everybody, everybody in our community's weed eater gets stolen mm-hmm. in the pawn shop. That has tortured me ever since I realized that I didn't do that. I want to talk a little bit more about voice because I wanted to talk to you more about the the oral storytelling work that you do and the higher ground uh, stuff anyway. And then when I was uh, checking out your bio on your website, um, you had this passage that I loved about uh, how your favorite part of writing is trying to catch the sound of people telling one another stories um, and that some of your favorite writing seems to be written by ear. And I think that is a really good description of your work. Um, and you mentioned Flannery O'Connor and Richard Price and, and Charles Portis and all of that, all of that tracks. And so I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about your, the kind of influence that voice has on you outside of the, the kind of oral history component that we've already talked about a little bit, like works that are, you know, characters that have always stuck with you, um, that sort of stuff. Probably the dominant influence in my, even the written work, is just I have always my family was like this and then my friends were like this that we really were story people who just told stories and like who could remember things and you know who could not only that but you tell it you can t- you tell it better mm-hmm. you know that it wasn't even just who remembered the story but who could tell it better that this was um you know, extant that that we were together, and that this was a really it was a time to exchange performances. Right. You know that that every day. I I mean, like, not only did this have to do with family stories and stuff that you know happened while you're on vacation or whatever. It was also like, I mean, I was of an age. I graduated high school in 1981. So when I was in high school, it was I was in the moment between when Saturday Night Live first came on the air and the moment where everybody had a VCR. Mm. And so you would have to come to school on Monday 
And whoever won lunch would be the one who could most accurately remember all those sketches. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That we would, you know, that I that that was just, and that that was a constant among everybody. That you know that we were just always that was prized. Who could tell? Who could tell stories the best? And and then that kind of feeds into, um, and so you know, and so much storytelling is voice. You know, it's sure, about sure. saying things funny and. Just people are just funny. Some people are funny, and it doesn't. Um, I think that's the other thing too. That it was, you know, there was always comedy in it. And uh, but I remember hearing Lee Smith one time at home and say that the only thing is voice. He said, if you create characters that people want to listen to, it doesn't matter what you tell them. Mm. They'll sit there and 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 she was talking about reading. You know, they'll sit there and listen to that voice as long as that voice is talking. And so um, that was very empowering for for a non-plotter. You know, you just um, wind them up. You know, you figure yeah. them out, and you get something that people seem to respond to. And then, uh, and then you just. I mean, you know, I think the thing is, what's funny is, they're also the kind of people that just get into stuff. Yeah. Right? And that these are um, they're the people that don't that don't take. Uh, they don't take stuff lying down, right? You know, they, they react to something in public. They don't just kind of be quiet about it. And then they, so then they're engaged in it, and um, you just know they're there. And I think that all of that phenomenon was a lot more important to me than um, anything I ever read. It was funny because it was a mix of people who got into things and then people who could talk about what they got yeah. into. Yeah, yeah. But so that said, you know, you can imagine, like, Maddie Ross is exactly like that in True Grit, perhaps as much as anybody. She is, you know, the archetype of that in that, you know, she t totally defied her role to engage in uh, the something that she was completely in over her head if she hadn't been herself. And she told the story in a way that is so full of funny asides. I mean, I never thought about it, but that's exactly why I like that book so much. Because she's both the kind of person that gets into things and you can't resist watching. And she's the voice you can't resist hearing her tell her own story. I want to know if you thought about who you were writing for and where they were. Well, I think first it was the students at the school yeah. where I work, community college and the coal fields, you know, and um, community. Uh, I think also, you know, I had, I had worked for um, a media arts center here in the coal fields at Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and had been going to the Appalachian Studies Conference, you know, my whole working life for 25 years or so and so the the people who um did work on the culture and um history of this place and the present you know current events activism activists i i wanted it to not seem bad to them you know i wanted it to work for them mm -hmm. um i mean you know it was it was important um to the 
books I've written to work for Apple Shop, which is a place that made documentaries about the region that were intended to be seen outside the region, but they were they answered first to um, the perceived needs inside the region, including you know to present people with respect, to present pe- to present films about the place as if people in the place were going to watch it. Um, you know, and that is to say, to be particularly attentive to not other the people in the depictions. Um, and so, you know, there was that kind of double, double speaking. You're speaking to the place, but you know that um, you want other people to listen. Right, right. And so, um, but you, and in some ways they're, it's like you're almost positioned it to be overheard. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. Because then it doesn't, you're not kind of further siloing one group away from another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, it it does become a, again, it's like, it's a performance, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're. You're speaking to this group with the intention of being overheard by that group, which is to say you're speaking to that other group, but yeah, that it affects the dynamics of the utterance, yeah. how you conceive of the audience. Was that something that was on your mind while you were writing? Yes. No, yeah, it's, it hard, was. Okay. it's hard to do in the moment. Yeah, right. Um, so let's see then. I think in the moment you're you're writing for yourself, right? right? Like trying to make it sound right by whatever that means. I mean, I think the I think the other thing in the moment is just trying to write a book that sounded like somebody telling a good story. Mm-hmm. You know, that constantly reading it out loud, constantly like trying to translate it. You know, it's like my goal was that I could open it up and read out of any part of it and it would work as a reading. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And relatively few asides. I think one thing that came up because of that was the idea that – um I really got interested in the idea of when you're creating metaphors, what is within the realm of the speaker. Right. And also, how do you choose a metaphor that adds to the emotional specificity of what you're saying? That makes sense. Yeah. Like, if something's gray... And it's a hard scene. Maybe it's gray as pipe. But if you want it to be something softer, maybe it's gray as, you know, old bed sheets or right, something. Right. And that that that, you know, that you can then you can keep your narrative propulsion and kind of make asides. One of my favorite, favorite lines in Either one, but it's in trampoline. Um, and it, it's kind of a, an adjacent to that point, but it's just, it's such a pitch perfect detail and it fucking kills me. When you say that, um, I think it's, I think it's the woman that Don calls Anne Ohio. 
Um, uh-huh. Navy says uh, she's the kind of woman tells you the mashed potatoes aren't hot all the way through. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's so, like, I know that, like, I know so many of those women. Like, I know exactly yeah. that, that, exactly people, that thing. Yeah, a lot of people won't tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just did my cousin's book club. It was all these Cincinnati Presbyterians. It was like a room full of Anne Ohio's. Oh my it god! Was, how did that go? How did that go? Did they? Like they it? were so nice. They were nicer than Anne Ohio. Anne Ohio is kind of tough, <laughs> but Anne Ohio is that she's that person that she you probably could speak to better than I could. She's the person that left, come back, and mm. there. I have, I have a theory that this is the people that can be the roughest on people in mm-hmm. the mountains. Are those ones that went away and got to thinking there was something else? I think that's true, and I think you know because you. It's yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this lately and this idea of um you know cuz you do you do very much get ingrained in you this idea that if you want to do anything you have to leave. And I think there are a lot of really amazing young Appalachians right now who are countering that very hard and kind of trying to do it as loudly as they can to drown out people like JD Vance, but um yeah, it it does really I think a lot of that you know, I would I would not be surprised if the antagonism that comes out of that is about seeing a way that it could be done that you didn't do. You know, because right. that's something I really struggle with. Of like, you love this place so much, but you don't live there, and you think about it so much, but you're not involved with it. And at what point are like are you going to continue to be okay with that? Or at a certain point, do you have to kind of put your money where your mouth is? Right. Well, and I mean, there's. I really think there hasn't. I think it's wide open for you, buddy. The uh, the um, out migrant Appalachian novel. You know, we've got the Dollmaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just about the arrival. But I mean, you know, I just think about. Um, I mean, you know, it's like I see a lot of bounce back people. I think uh-huh. that the urban Appalachian experience is un unlimbed in many ways. Yeah. That like I. Like there are several characters that I could name off the top of my head that I'd love to see somebody do. One is it's just like the you know, people's people move to Cincinnati and they come back and they're ten times wilder than anybody. You know, they're just kind of <laughs> frightening to their country cousins. There's that character. And then there's the ones that just think they're better because they're carrying the they're carrying the shame. Right. That People here probably aren't even, you know, stuff that people here are still able to celebrate. And so they're the worst, you yeah. know, at, at dogging people down. It's like it's like ex-smokers to, to current smokers. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then there was one more I was thinking about that, um, and I've forgotten it. But anyway, it's like I think there's, there's, a, um, there's a cavalcade of characters. Oh, and I, I'll tell you another one because I had one of my early students. She had the thickest mountain accent of anybody I've ever had in class. She grew up completely in Chicago. Huh. She must have grown up in a linguistic enclave. You know, I actually met a guy when I was doing, I was doing reporting here about the Appalachian outmigration into Detroit. And I met a guy here who had lived here his whole life and sounded like he grew up like in Corbin. Because his parents, like, he went back down there with them all the time. All of their friends in Detroit were 
from the region. And this right. community was so strong. This expat community was so strong, which is what I was there to write about. And um, yeah, and he and I mean, Michigan accents are so distinct and are so not Appalachian accents. And it was so striking right. to like see the words coming out of his mouth. Well, yeah, and and yeah, and so then it really does allow you to see what comes from where. Yeah, because then you'll see people who have the Michigan accent, but they have cultural ways. You know, that mm-hmm. seem they fit right back in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is interesting. I tell you, this was the thing. So I was kind of hanging around out in the hall uh, with the in the, during the JD Vance episode of the Appalachian Studies Conference in yeah. Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, you know, I was like, I support the protests. I thought it was uh, uh, not inappropriate. I thought, you know, I think it's fine for people to protest. And it gets a little rocky sometimes. That's the way it goes. But I will have to say, I wanted, I wanted to see this guy. Mm. I wanted to catch his act in that, uh, in that setting. And I was kind of, uh, and I didn't hang around. It, 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 uh, I was, I couldn't hardly hear. But anyway, it was, you know, it's just like, I, I just wanted to see how, because I read the book, you know, and he, I. I would not question his Appalachianism in one way sure. because he was, you know, he was classic out migrant Appalachian that was, in some ways would be more readily claimed as an Appalachian than I ever would because I grew up in Kingsport, which, you know, isn't in the coal fields. Mm. But anyway, it, uh, yeah, it's just like, I, uh, I'm just so excited for you, Courtney. <laughs> You've Thanks, got so much, to do, so much to do. <laughs> I'm working on it. Work as fast as I can. <laughs> Typing with both hands. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about a little bit about how you got into writing. You didn't. You went to school. You have a master's in American studies. Is that right? Right. Which was out of an English department. Oh, it is out of an English department. Okay. So it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, so it was, all my graduate classes were either. American literature or American art history. And then I had one American, I think I had two American material culture classes or hmm. something like that, but they were taught by an English professor. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, why you wanted it? Well, I didn't know what I was going to do with the English, my bachelor's degree. And so I went to grad school because I, one of my teach friends, hold on a second, got me a, uh, uh, a teaching assistantship up there, mm-hmm. and so at UMass, and so I went to UMass Amherst in an MA PhD program, and I got up there and immediately, almost immediately, realized that I was not interested in hanging around for a PhD. <laughs> and um, but I had that's a long way. That's a long way from Tennessee for sure. And so I'm like, well, I can't go home empty-handed. So I stuck around and got a master's, and um. Enjoyed it, enjoyed that course of study, um, but came home and uh, immediately got a job, almost immediately got a job at Apple Shop. And it was like I was in the American Studies business. I didn't need a master's, but, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I was selling films to colleges and universities and working across disciplines. You know, I was kind of, I felt like I should have told you UMass, I'm like, I think I got a job in American studies. Mm-hmm. You might want to put me on. Yeah. And so, but I never did. And, um, 
but so yeah, so I just backed into everything my whole life. Well, so when did you start writing? I kind of, I never, I started like fiddling around, but never, like you know, never sent anything off or never going to writer camp or anything like that. Um, and then when uh, all through the you know college apple shop days, um, but then when I came. Uh, here and got involved with this theater work. A couple things happened. One is the thing I got involved with with Black Mountain, the lands unsuitable for mining. I felt like that was something worth writing about. Uh-huh. And then the other thing was um, that when we did these plays and we were writing stories, you know, we were writing dramatic narratives out of oral histories about uh, OxyContin and the other stuff that was going on in the community that then I felt like there was a point to writing. And then the other thing that happened is when, you know, there would be scenes that I had written and we did them in front of our community and it was people in the community saying the words that, you know, it was very validating. And that was when I'm like, well, I'm going to Hyman now. Mm. And then I went to Hyman and it was helpful. I had Silas House for my first workshop and I came home and I uh, I remember it was like Halloween weekend, and I was like, I don't know if I this is what I want to do or not. And so I had dawned. I the first I I didn't have anything. The first time I had ever written any creative writing for anybody outside of myself was I had to write those fifteen pages to get into Heinemann. Right. And I wrote about Dawn. Don's, you know, I wrote the first thing was about Don Jewel and I sent it in and um, I got in and I worked on her. You know, I was working on this book that became Trampoline and but I got out of there and I'm like, I don't know if, you know, this is worth spending all this money and time on. So I told myself, I said, I'm going to go to Asheville and I'm going to take three moleskin notebooks and if I can. F- I'm going to hole up in a motel. And if I can fill all three of these notebooks up in one weekend, this is what I'll do. And that's what I did. I just wrote as hard as I could all weekend. And then that was that. I have so many questions. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why Asheville? Why three Moleskine notebooks? Um, because there weren't Shinola notebooks. Because <laughs> they were small and approachable. They were small and approachable and unlined and just, yeah. Yeah. And Asheville's close because I like to write in public. And so you, there is, there were so many, um, you know, in downtown Asheville, you can walk from coffee shop to right, bar, okay. coffee shop. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There are, there is such a concentration of, uh, uh, places to sit and write, you know, that you could write and get up and you don't have to go too far. Heinemann did a lot of that for me in a sense where, like, obviously, you know, I had been making my living writing um, and had had been working on the novel a little bit um, for, you know, a, a little while, but kind of, Heinemann was a really good I don't know. Hyman was kind of life-changing in 
its ability to show me that like I was where I belonged, kind of, with like right. all the writers, you know? Right. And I think I really needed I mean, maybe everybody really needs at a certain point, or maybe, maybe many times at many different points, I don't know yet, you know, that kind of formalization or like some sense of not quite permission, but acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah. And you, well, and, and then the other thing was, it's like, you know, I, I've always been this way. It's like I so that I was that was 2006, so I was um, 43. So I was like, if I'm gonna do this, this is the I I have to do this right now, and I have to be all in. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it was like I haven't submitted too much short stuff. Every short thing I've ever got published, I used in trampoline or weed eater. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. I am not wasting. Except what you have to waste to figure out what you have to say, but it's like everything is going into those three books I told Darnell I was going to write. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm I'm not taking any sidetracks, and um, and you know I I don't know if that's helped me or hurt me, but that's I've been very task oriented mm-hmm. about. It. So does that? What's your um? What's your writing routine like then? I mean, I know you've got a lot of other responsibilities that you're juggling. Do you do a, a steady writing schedule or do you kind of work in fits and starts? Yeah, the worst thing that ever happened to my writing schedule was getting a book. Because then, you know, if you've got a day job, every, all the time that I put, you know, all the time I set aside for my writing, you also have to spend on doing stuff like podcasts. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those friggin' podcasters yeah. never leave you alone. But you know what I mean? It's like if you've got a day job and you're setting aside X for your writing, then that gets crowded up by the having of a book. Yes. So, but before that, I between the between 2010 and 2015, I wrote every single day, at least 10 minutes a day. I maybe missed like seven or eight days. And that's so that's so key, I think, to just be like 10 minutes. I'll just start yeah. with 10 minutes. Yeah. And then, you know, when you can do more, you can do more. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, I still, I, I try to that, but I try to do that still, but I would say it's more like, I think the important thing is just open the notebook yeah. and, and do something. And, um, like I hadn't done it in several days and today I just opened the notebook and imagine the day that I was writing about and just thought about something about the weather and just did, you know, and right. wrote something I might be able to use. But, you know, it's just like, and and I didn't have but 10 minutes. And it's really about, and it, and it doesn't work, I don't think, to just think about it. You have to physically engage with it. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just for a minute. It helps. Yeah. Because then it's kind of cooking back there, too. Right. How does right. it work for you with the drawing? Um, so, I mean, typically, so just for the ones that get published, I write it all, and then I go back and circle lines. Oh, okay. All drawings all at once. But if you saw my, my drafting, you know, like my notebooks, well, you've seen me. Yeah. You said a workshop with me. It's like. 
I'm drawing and writing back and forth all the time. Yeah. And so, like, in my, you know, novel notebooks, uh, it's all pictures of Dawn and Weed Eater and Nicolette. You know, it's like, well, I'm trying to think of what to write next. I'll draw them, and they'll say something. You know, we'll just kind of (laughs) chit-chat about what's going on. Or, you know, I'll make up their T-shirts and, you know, whatever. But So because of that, are you mostly writing longhand? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I... Everything starts longhand, and then I type. So it's like, here's how it goes: you, you, you write in your notebooks, you carry them with you everywhere. Then, when the dread of losing your notebooks becomes too strong, that's what, that's the. I felt that dread instantly, though. Like I don't think. I, yeah. So I'll have so I like chain smoke notebooks, right? Okay. <laughs> I'll have so I'll have little pocket ones. I'll keep in my pocket for whatever I think of or whenever I have a minute, and so. I'll have like four of them going because I'll have some stuff in them and I'll be like, Oh my God, I'll lose that. I almost put, you know, all it takes is for me to put almost put one through the wash and I'll be like, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I have to start a clean notebook every time I go out of the house. But anyway, when that becomes overwhelming, you type them up and then, you know, you're edit. I can edit, you know, I can move stuff around. Right. But usually it's, Longhand, type it up, print it out, work on it, you know, go back and generate new stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I had this residency um, this winter at VCCA, that was the prompt to type up everything that had been accumulating because the thought of taking like the six notebooks that made up like everything I had been working on for like, However, many months, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't take these on a plane. That can't happen. That's a lot, dude. (laughs) If I had six notebooks built up, I would freak. (laughs) I'm I'm usually like two notebooks. I've got got two little ones and one big one right now, and I'm kind of. I'm kind of frightened. Mine are. I I use these really slim ones, um, and they don't have a ton of pages in them. So right. it's not quite as crazy as it sounds, but, um, right. yeah, no, that was a, but it was a little, it was a little extreme. Yeah. When, uh, when you're typing it up, do you, are you doing a lot of rewriting after that? You know, are you kind of more moving stuff uh, around yeah. and fine tuning or is it like typing up a scene and being uh, like, Oh, I don't want this scene. No, it's constant. Yeah. And, and really it's just like, it's kind of like when, uh, when you type it up, really, you can see it. Mm-hmm. And I'll read, I'm, I'll like write a couple of pages and go back and read it, you know, and kind of wind back up to where I am next. Yeah. So I'll like get it sounding better every time I go back. But then it's kind of like until you see it in print, you know, that's the other thing. It's got to kind of look right in print. Too. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're just always messing with it until yeah. it's over. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I remember, in our workshop with Jennifer Hague last summer, you said that um, you'll often like fill out calendars for your characters and like account for everybody uh-huh. on different days. Can you talk about some of the stuff like that that you do to, um, to sort of keep an eye on everybody? Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story first. I, I had written like 30 pages of Albert stuff and uh-huh. then I was doing a reading of Weed Eater and I'm like, oh, fuck, I killed Albert. <laughs> You did in a really, really like casually brutal fashion. Yeah. 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 
that was based on something that happened. Mm. That had a real note for me of, um, do you read George Saunders? A little bit. That was a very George Saunders touch to me of just kind of like this, like almost passing piece of information that just cripples you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was so passing. I'd forgotten it when I sat down to write pop, (laughs) but, um, uh, so there's, so that's the main reason, right? Right. Just to keep everybody straight. There's a certain amount of that that I don't mind. You know, there's something about just inaccuracies that, uh, or, you know, inconsistencies. Yeah. Like we, this happens and we have this one play where the woman, had the, it's a woman's funeral. The play is a woman's funeral and she was a real character. And so all the stories are, you know, everybody talking about her. She had five husbands and, you know, and we, it was never clear whose kid, the different, parents were okay. and you know like exactly how people were like and so this to me is true to my experience of eastern kentucky it's like i'm never quite you know it's like i that's not their grandfather no no that's it's <laughs> her little brother and um so you know there's a certain amount of that that that's to be cultivated yeah. but i had you do have to kind of go back and figure out how old everybody is and so then when were they born you know, what's their relative ages and then because that's what creates, you know, the nature of relationships. Right. Like I'm having a lot of trouble in the third book, the stuff that Hubert's Hubert's brothers kind of come in more in the third book. Okay. And I'm like, oh no, those must be Hubert's nephews because his brothers are up in their sixties by now. Right, right. They can't be running around like that. And so yeah, I constantly have to do that just to keep it straight. So are you, how far are you in the process of the third one? I I would, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, but I'm pretty, I'm into, you know, it's like, I, I got a lot. <laughs> are you I, starting to feel strange about it ending? Um, no, I, I figured out a thing today on the on the way up here and I forgot it already. I need to just about how it, how it works. It's, I can tell you this, it's going to be more foodie. I've been like riding with vittles right next to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sample that you did at Heinemann had a lot of, had a lot of food in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, um, I think her, uh, her daughter is, I figured out what she's going to do. She's, uh, she comes up with all these herbal soda pops. She's like, it's yeah. Seth, that she's going to be kind of a I'm thinking there might even be some product tie-ins if I play my cards right. Is she a little hipster entrepreneur? I think she might be. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that she's that she's getting into that thing, and her mother's has some issues with that. But it's so. I mean, I joke about it, but that is so interesting. The sort of like the readoption. Yeah. Of things and how and how it how it plays out and I mean there are so many examples of that. Um, yeah, and and in some ways she's untethered from the whole coal mining thing, right? The whole company town you got to work for you got to work for somebody, right? Exactly. It's reassertion of some kind of more independent. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's funny because what I started with was the idea that this book was going to be about the end of Appalachia, mm. as I know it. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, it's all works. I'm engaged. It's it's good. 
Well, I'll wrap up with you here. Um, this is a question I like to ask everybody at the end of each episode. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? I, I don't think there's any such thing. <laughs> Just ending <laughs> on a bright note. <laughs> here's what here's the thing that surprised me is that uh you know it's like you don't think you're ever going to have a book and then you think you're going to be interested in everything that goes with it and um i can i mean and i enjoy all this and enjoy um i really have you know it's 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 super, super fun to have readers you know the first six chapters of trampoline were serialized on the website still and one day, one of the students in my office who actually had a lot to, she helped a lot. She's the one that dyed her hair green. Oh, when, okay. When Dawn dyed her, I, she came in and I asked her how you dye your hair green if you have black hair. And she said, oh, I'll go home and do it and come back tomorrow and tell you. And so she did. <laughs> Lauren Adams, Arnie, she's one of my good buddies now. But she, um, anyway, she came in one day and she said, when are you going to put another chapter up? I'm like, what are you talking about? She said. I've been reading your book online. I'm like, you know, what? Because I, I really didn't think I would ever see anybody who'd read it until yeah. after I was dead. And then I yeah. wouldn't see them then because I'd be dead. And uh, and so, but, you know, so having readers is good. And it's like I really enjoyed that. And But I swear to goodness that uh, still I would just rather be doing it. All I want to do is make up more stuff, you know, that I don't care what the, you know, it's like. I found myself like, I don't care if they make a movie bad or not. And if they do, I don't care what it looks like. I'm just, you know, it's like, I'm, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, I'll go do these things and, you know, I'll try and be funny or warm and engaging or whatever. But I just like, I want to just go make up more. I want to do it again. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like that my, that sitting around and telling the stories and, that that would be the other thing. It's just like being the company of stories, you know, being the people who tell them, and and that's all that, you know, that's the best. The best is just sitting around telling stories, and then writing out of that is the next best thing. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>